Father, to you we give thanks from our hearts for how you have cared for us. We give back to you our tithes and our offerings, not simply as a display of how you've met our physical needs and cared for us in this life, but how truly thankful we are to be called your children. That you, while we were your enemies, sent Christ to die for us. And not only reconciled us to you, redeemed us back from the curse of sin and the law, but Lord, that you made us your children, adopted sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are grateful to be yours, and so we give back to you out of that. Lord, may we continue to be cheerful givers in all of our lives as we live our lives, giving of ourselves for your glory to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turning your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 11. We're going to begin reading in verse 18 this morning, Jeremiah eleven eighteen. This is God's word. The Lord made it known to me and I knew, then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine, and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me, and you test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away, because they said, He will not see our latter end. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me. Therefore, I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. 
Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvests because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people." But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We need it. We thank you that you have spoken to us in it. We pray that you would now open our eyes to it. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Why do the wicked prosper? It's a question that's probably as old as anyone can imagine, a question that likely every person has wrestled with in some degree or another. It's mind-boggling to see someone who seems to want to do good, care about others, consider the needs of others before themselves. They work for noble things, and yet they struggle and stumble through life. And yet there are others who don't care about anyone but themselves. Interested only in evil things, work toward gain while harming others, and yet they seem to enjoy all the benefits and pleasures that life has to offer. It is a question that I think every believer, if not every human, has wrestled with in history. Now, you may think of the most extreme examples, drug cartels, gang members, corporate greed, politicians, abusers, extortioners, Ponzi scheme, architects, but we all know that this comes a little more close to home than we often want to admit. Bullies who push their way around, those who lie and then try and cover it up with more lies, those who keep secrets, those who live duplicitously, acting one way and then another, depending on the audience. I say closer to home because sometimes these people are neighbors and co-workers. Sometimes they can be in the church. Sometimes they can even be in our own homes. And so the question that comes up in our hearts is, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't he stop those who harm others? Why doesn't he bring justice in our lives right now? This is a hard thing to consider. I think there are actually three difficult things in this passage. You may have noticed as we read through it today. I'm going to mention them up front, but we'll look at each of them as we work through the text. The first, I think, that's difficult is in verse 20 of chapter 11, where Jeremiah says to the Lord, let me see your vengeance upon them. Because what do we expect? We expect Jeremiah to say, Lord, be merciful to them and forgive them because they're evil and they need forgiveness. And yet Jeremiah says, let me see your vengeance upon them. The second is the question of the wicked prospering, which we just mentioned in 12.1. And then the third is where we see the Lord say of his people in verse 8 of chapter 12, therefore I hate her. All three of these things are tough things 
things that if you were reading Jeremiah 11 and 12 on your own, you might stop and think, did I read that right? Is that really there in my Bible? But as difficult as all of these things are, I think that the one that's the most troubling or the one that we wrestle with rather the most is this whole question of why the wicked prosper. We know God will ultimately judge. We know that Christ has taken upon himself the judgment that is due to us, that we have been forgiven as his people. Yet it is still so difficult to see people who practice wickedness seem to be getting the best out of life. We know we're not supposed to envy. Yet there seems to be something different about this struggle, doesn't there? I'm drawing attention to this at the beginning to make this clear. You're not alone in this question. You're not the only one who has asked this question. And Jeremiah isn't the only one, as we'll see in Scripture, who asks this question. It is an honest question. Life in a fallen world, why do the wicked prosper? Beyond these difficult words, which we'll consider today, I also want to paint the bigger picture of what we're looking at here. And that is, if you remember last week, we're moving from the first main section of Jeremiah into this next section. We looked at the, the, the foundation of the covenant, but now we're moving into what are known as Jeremiah's confessions or complaints, as I describe them, because they are more like complaints. In fact, in verse 1, he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. That's his second confession. So there he even calls them a complaint. Um, Jeremiah is known for a number of things. He's the weeping prophet. He's known for, for many things that are unique to him. But this honest discourse with Yahweh, is, I think, one of the most helpful, encouraging, and refreshing things to see. That we can approach God with our hard questions. Jeremiah certainly does. He does so in a respectful and honoring way, but he brings them with honesty and candor. So let's begin looking in verse 18 of chapter 11 with the first of these complaints. You may notice in your Bible there's a transition in, in, the, in the language. It's, it's kind of abrupt. You may also know, depending on how your translation is recorded, that there's a shift from uh, uh, prose to poetry by the indention there. But if, if that's not there, you certainly notice it by its voice. Jeremiah uh, just begins talking about something, and he doesn't really tell you what, what it is right away. He kind of unfolds it, that there's this plot and there's a plot, and it's against him, and he wouldn't have known about it unless the Lord made it clear. It was happening, and he had no idea it was happening. He finally realizes that it's against his life. Verse 19, that he's a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. He's not painting himself in a picture here of, of a sacrificial sense, like we think of Isaiah 53, Jesus being led to the slaughter, but rather with this idea of a gentle lamb being aloof, not knowing what's going on, just kind of being trusting. That's how Jeremiah was. And we find out more as to why he was so trusting when we find out who it is that was threatening him. It becomes clear that they're not simply mad at him about his message. Uh, and if you remember last week, we've now shifted in time. We're, we're about 20 years or halfway in to Jeremiah's ministry. So he's been at this for a while. They're not simply mad at him about his message. They actually want him dead. They claim to, that they will cut him off from the land of the living. They don't just want his voice silenced, they want him dead. He has experienced continual rejection. His whole ministry was one that was difficult. I don't know if any of us can really comprehend what it must have been like to be the prophet Jeremiah, to be instructed with this message, and yet to have it very poorly received. Very poorly received. And now they want his life. They want him eliminated. 
Yet in verse 20, we see Jeremiah commit his cause to the Lord, to, to the one who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. Much of these complaints that we'll see of Jeremiah sound a lot like the Psalms. It's quite possible that Jeremiah was meditating on the Psalms during his ministry. A number of commentators point that out. It's likely that the Psalm that we read this morning together, Psalm 73, would have been one that would have been of great comfort to him. It asks this question, why do the wicked prosper? Maybe this is what Jeremiah was reading and meditating on as he asked this question. There's a type of psalm known as an imprecatory psalm. And it's the psalms that you uh, are, it's your, they're your least favorite psalms most likely because they are the psalms in which God uh, or the writer of the psalmist is calling on God to judge, the, judge his enemies, to bring a curse down on the enemies. That's what uh, imprecate means is to call down a curse. So again, these are not comfortable psalms that we uh, are, are enjoy reading. But there is one, that, at least one line that I've heard many Christians quote in, 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 in my lifetime, but it's usually related to politics. If someone's in office that you don't like, they often quote Psalm 109.8, May his days be few, may another take his office. Well, if you will go back and read all of Psalm 109, you will find that that is the kindest thing the psalmist prays for in the whole psalm. And it's, it's lengthy. It's actually a song, a, a psalm or a song of... Uh, of calling down God's wrath upon his enemies. The language of the imprecatory psalms is what we see here in Jeremiah's call to God, let me see your vengeance upon them. Note that it is not Jeremiah's desire to seek revenge. It's not a desire of him to take into his hands vengeance, but he is calling on God to show his just judgment. And this is right. And this is true, that just judgment must fall on wickedness. If you don't appreciate and understand that, you can't appreciate the gospel for what it is. Because the gospel is the the good news that Jesus has taken upon him the wrath that should have fallen on us. Because guess what? All of us were his enemies. All of us were his enemies. He is calling on God to bring this judgment. This is the whole message of Jeremiah. Judge the people for their wickedness. And yet, ultimately, he says, for to you I have committed my cause. Jeremiah is not taking matters into his own hands, although he is praying to God for this. Verses 21 to 23 pull the curtain back a little further, and it shows us that those who wish to harm Jeremiah aren't random people of Judah. These aren't just people walking around on the streets that are mad at him. These are people from his own town. We found out these are the men of Anathoth. This is where Jeremiah is from. These are are his neighbors. These are the people that he grew up around. And then we don't see it until verse 6 of chapter 12. It's actually his family. This was Jeremiah's family. This is why he didn't know. This is why he was aloof as a lamb led to slaughter. This is why he was so trusting. It was his family members that wanted to take his own life. The men of Anathoth, this is who seeks your life. They issue threats to Jeremiah to stop prophesying or they will kill him. So this isn't like word on the street, Jeremiah hears like someone's got a, you know, someone's put a a number out for your life. I mean, they tell him this directly. Stop prophesying or we will kill you. 
This is a very personal and difficult ultimatum that he receives. And so then it is of great comfort for Jeremiah to hear the Lord say that he will judge these wicked people. His punishment will fall on them for their murderous threats. God will not let their wickedness go unpunished. But notice in verse 23, he doesn't tell them when it's going to happen. He just says, in the year of their punishment. And the word for year here is not a 365-day time period, but rather we could just say in the time of their judgment. It's, it's a period of time, but it's unknown. Jeremiah isn't told. So much of Scripture tells us to wait on the Lord. It's one of the hardest things that we have to do. We cry with the psalmist, how long? How long, O Lord? And yet waiting to see God vindicate us, Deliver us or remove those who are wicked is seriously difficult. We are called to wait on the Lord. The ultimate hope for Jeremiah and for us is that God will eventually bring true justice. It will come, but we must wait on the Lord. In chapter 12, verse 1, the second confession or complaint begins with, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Note how Jeremiah approaches the Lord. Righteous are you. Jeremiah, much like the psalmist, praises God with respect as a form of address. It's true that we can be honest with God. We can bring to him our our complaints, our deepest questions. And yet we must always remember that he is God. He is holy and worthy of our honor. Now, as opposed to God, who is holy and righteous, Jeremiah then poses the question about these who are the opposite. They are wicked. They are treacherous. The NIV translates the word treacherous as faithless and wicked as unrighteous. This is who these people are. Why would the omnipotent and sovereign God allow those who are diametrically opposed to him not only to keep going, but to thrive, to prosper? And then Jeremiah takes the indictment a little bit further, the complaint a little bit further. Not only are they allowed to prosper, he says, you, Lord, have planted them. In other words, this hasn't happened on their own accord. You were the one who was in power. You sat on the throne as the sovereign one of the universe when this happened. And then comes what I think is the kicker. These people, he says of them, you are near in their mouth and far from their heart. These are the righteous, the religious folk, church folk, we might say, in our own day. These are the people who talk the talk and have the appearance of being righteous. Again, Jeremiah calls on God to judge them, asking him to do to them what he, they, they threatened to do to him. Again, he was like a lamb led to slaughter, and so he calls on the Lord to pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. And while Jeremiah is calling to God to carry out justice, He is doing this not in a selfish sense, but yet there's still a humanness to his portrayal. Jeremiah is still a man. He is not without sin. There's not, and none of us are without the mix of emotions. You know, sometimes when you have various emotions and you feel in one instant it's a righteous anger, and then the next moment you think, oh, that's not righteous at all, that's sinful, and you're kind of back and forth. I mean, Jeremiah certainly experienced the same things. He wasn't infallible. And so we can relate to him. We get it. He's kind of back and forth about, you know, in the sense of, uh, or he had to be in his own heart uh, of, of, of what he wanted. He wanted the, the wicked to get their just desserts. And yet there is still a message of hope, which we're about to see. 
Now, the response of God to Jeremiah is an exhortation to him, and it's expressed in the idea that if you can't hack it here, how are you going to make it when the going gets even tougher? Look in verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? God is not making little of Jeremiah's struggle. He's not making light of what he has been through. He understands what Jeremiah has been through in these first 20 years. But it is a way of the Lord challenging him to say, as things get tougher, which they will, my grace will be sufficient for you, for my power will be displayed in your weakness. We don't like hearing that. We, we, we like verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Because we think somehow the strength might be manifest to look at, maybe some people might think it's our own when it's actually been through Christ all along. So a verse like this where my power will be displayed in your weakness or made perfect in your weakness is something that's a lot more difficult for us to accept. We see in verse 6 then the startling revelation who these people actually are. They're actually Jeremiah's family. And we can see now why he was not aware of the threat against him. There are a number of, of, of writers who have kind of supposed different scenarios Jeremiah going back to town thinking everything was okay, giving high fives to his buddies, talking to his aunts and uncles, having no clue what he was walking into was a trap. Don't know exactly what happened, but he describes it as fitting as something like that. I didn't have a clue. Unless the Lord told me, I would have never known. And yet, here, Yahweh instructs him to be on guard, not to trust his family. Then in verses 7 to 13, we read the heart-wrenching words in which God expresses his judgment. This is where the judgment becomes clear. Notice, beginning in verse 7, we read, My house, this is the Lord speaking, my heritage, the beloved of my soul. He then says, my heritage two more times, my vineyard, my portion, my pleasant portion. These endearing terms of his people who are his. And yet he says to them, this is what's going to happen. They're written in the prophetic perfect tense. That's that tense where it looks like it's past tense, where he says, they, I have forsaken them, I have abandoned them, I have given them into the hands of their enemies. Yet none of these things have happened. You may remember this from Revelation, how it's called a prophetic perfect tense. It looks like it's past tense, it's actually future tense. But the reason it's called prophetic perfect is that it is as if it is so sure that it will happen that we can write it in the past tense. So what's what, what Jeremiah, the reason he's using this tense here. The Lord describes his people as a number of predatory animals, a lion, a hyena, a speckled bird of prey, his treasured possession, the apple of his eye, the beloved of his heart becomes his enemy. And so in verse 8, he says, therefore, I hate her. It's hard to hear God say, I hate anything. I mean, it's one thing to hear him say, I hate, and he lists six and seven abominations. But it's another thing to hear him say, I hate her, speaking of his people. But what would one who loves do to one who is assaulting them? Remember, these are the faithless ones, the treacherous ones the ones who are not walking in faith. Even though they belong to Israel, they have become like the nations. Christopher Wright says, if a lion attacks you, you cannot but treat it as an enemy. That is what God feels in response to his people's behavior towards them. 
His character doesn't change. His everlasting love doesn't end here. But His holiness demands a righteous defense against this assault. And in this moment, that is the righteous defense for Him to say this of them. It still mourns Him. It grieves Him. Why? Because He still loves them. They're His people. And yet there are those among His people who are not His. They're not part of the remnant. They're not those whom He will call to Himself. And so He speaks of them in this one group as those who have rejected Him. This discipline that is to come will include Babylon coming in to do just like they have done to Him. As an attack, Babylon is going to be like a lion, like they attacked Him. Another part of the judgment is going to be through creation that their agricultural efforts will be doomed through famine, verse 11. They will be frustrated in their attempts to do the basic things, gather water and food. The whole land will become desolate, verses 12 and 13 tell us. They will reap only thorns. They will try, but they will only be frustrated with exhaustion. And just so they know it's not bad weather, he states clearly in verse 13, this is happening because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Judgment is coming. Yet, there's still hope here. This is what Jeremiah does. He's writing and he's, you know, he keeps giving this really difficult message. I think this is why a lot of people give up on reading Jeremiah because it's so dark and so difficult to read through. But if you'll stick with it, Jeremiah plants these little nuggets along the way that we see in verses 14 to 18 where we see the promise of the gospel far away. We've seen this already, we'll continue to see it, but just as we saw through the lens of the covenant last week, there is always hope that God's plan of redemption that was established before the creation of the world will emerge, and it does emerge. In verse 14, the Lord addresses his evil neighbors. These are the nations around Israel. These are those who have harmed his people, have tried to remove them from the land that he's given them, and of course, this is a long list of countries including those he uses to discipline his own people. And he promises first to do them as they have done to his people. Verse 15, After this, however, after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. He's not talking about Israel here. Not talking about Judah. He's talking about the nations. And I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. This word for compassion, it's... It's often translated love. It simply means love. But there's the idea it can also be translated as pity. So compassion is a good word for us to use here. But we could easily add the modifier gracious. It's unmerited compassion. Because the people, and this would include Judah, but the people of Judah and the nations of the world, because they were enemies of God. They didn't pursue God. They were His enemies. Yet he initiates the compassion. He shows them grace. He promises this to them, that he will lavish his grace upon them. He is the actor. He is the initiator. And then comes the continuation of the covenantal language in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal. Then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. The nations are called to learn the ways of the Lord. 
to swear by his name as the Lord lives. John McKay writes, Swearing by my name was not merely an outward pledge of allegiance, but complete acknowledgement of his supremacy as the one who is to be worshipped. That is, they are called to put their faith in Yahweh and walk with him. The nations. The nations. The opposite of what they had taught Judah to do. They had taught Judah to worship Baal. They are being taught or or, or promised here that one day he would draw them to himself. And we know that this is what happens when the Messiah comes. A picture of mercy, an announcement of the plan of redemption. In Romans 5 we read, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So why do the wicked prosper? Where we have to go here is not so much concern about the wicked, because all men are like grass, here today and gone tomorrow. I think the, the place that we need to go in our thoughts is, why would God save me? Because I was his enemy. That's what Romans 5 tells us. We were all his enemies. And while we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. No one deserves compassion of the Holy One. No one can say, I earned it. I deserved it. He owed it to me. It is all by grace and by grace alone. The promise of judgment, if we reject His anointed one is clear in verse 17. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. This is the promise, the other side of the covenant, the curse, right? The promise of hope and the promise of the curse. And this is true of any nation, but it is also true of each person. He addresses the nations in that language, but it's ultimately addressed to the people. Each of us has to consider this whole promise and curse of the covenant ourselves. Will I submit to Him? Will I learn His ways, trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins? Then if I will, the promise is true that I am reconciled to God and saved by the life of Christ. But if I reject Christ, then judgment is rightfully mine. That is the message. Jeremiah's question in this passage, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? The unrighteous and faithless cannot please God. Hebrews tells us without faith it is impossible to please Him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And yet the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of all who turn to Him in faith. What will you do with this invitation to the covenant? Will you say as the Lord lives, put your trust in Him? Or will you continue to put your trust in yourself or in other things? I hope you will hear the compassion of the covenant-keeping God today to call you to come to Him in faith. For those who are trusting in Christ, take stock of the covenant promises. Why do the wicked prosper? 
they won't forever. Their prosperity is a facade, like dust that will blow away with the wind. It is temporary, and wickedness will not go unpunished. But the promises of our covenant-keeping God are forever. They will come to pass. They will not fade away. His promises are sure and steady and true. And he says to us today, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103. He says to us today, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, that's us, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah 56. He says to us today, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. He is our God and we are his people. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we still, we don't understand. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we understand that the wicked will one day face judgment. We understand that we would face judgment just the same if it weren't for your mercy. But Lord, we still wrestle with this because we're in this life and it just seems in many ways unfair. And So when we When we find ourselves swimming in these waters, would you take us back to the cross to see what is truly unfair turned upside down? How you took the foolishness of the cross, your son, free from sin, perfectly lived life and yet slain for our sins. Why? To redeem us who were your enemies. To reconcile us, even though we were opposed to you. Even though we shook our fists in your face. While we were your enemies, you sent Christ to die for us. Would you take us back to that point, to the cross, so that we won't worry then about what justice truly is. Because we can see there that you satisfy it. That you will deal rightfully with those who accept you, and you will deal rightfully with those who reject you. And may we give it and say, this is in your hands, Lord. And may we trust you. You are sovereign and you are good. Would you help us to know and trust this is true about you in all things and in all ways, even when we can't make sense of the difficult things we see in this life. Lord, may we ever be filled with gratefulness so that we might be a testimony to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing in response our hymn of prayer.